Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. How are you? Oh, that sounded good. Um, <laughs> I love it. You show up here and you're like, hey, how you guys have as much energy as I do? Yeah, we're glad to be here. Hey, but I am excited to be here. This morning is a little bit different for me because if you've been coming to New Heights, I normally I like to stand down here on the floor only to see the screen and to be able to project to the people in the back. I'm going to be standing on the stage from here on out, which is different for me, not typically what I do. I do have a true story of uh, I like to get really close to the edge of the stage, and, and I, I do it when I stand here. I was, I was preaching at uh, JBU at their cathedral, and I got up. They have like a lip on the edge of it, and I was up there, and I just got really animated, and I slipped right off that bad boy, right down on the ground. It was quite a true moment for me in life, but, um, but sometimes I get a little bit excited, and, and, and that happens. So I got to stay on the stage. But number two is today I have a clicker so I can control my own slides um, and for someone like me, I love a clicker because now I have all the power, which is really nice. Uh, but also then I can kind of go up my own pace. But I didn't build my presentation uh, or outline my sermon knowing that I was going to be clicking it. So it's a little different experience. So I get off, throw me some grace along the way. Um, but I love uh, what I get to talk about today, the end of James. We are finishing out our, our sermon, our, our teaching series in the book of James. Um, James is a powerful book, a whole lot of conviction. I know as we've talked as a teaching team of just what the Lord has showed us in the midst of working through the book of James. But I have an honest question for you as we get started. As we've been working through the book of James, who honestly has read through the entire book as we've gone through it? Anybody? Okay, a whole two hands went up. Um, so here's my challenge to you. As we get into book series and, and we really let the Lord teach us through them, I want to encourage, empower, uh, challenge, whatever language we want to use there, all of you to read through it as well. I mean, we, we go in a pretty, pretty strict order. You can kind of see where we're headed. Uh, but really read the Word of God. I did my undergrad, actually, at John Brown University, and we would have uh, an Old Testament class in one semester and a New Testament class in the other semester. And I remember our professors would assign the reading. Very few people would actually do it, which is our culture. We're just not great about reading uh, things other than Twitter and Facebook. Um, I don't think you read on Instagram. I, I don't have Instagram, but I think that's just pictures, right? It's both. Yeah, thanks. Bad sermon illustration. All right, so, uh, but what I would do is I, would, I actually took the time to read through Scripture, and man, I was floored. If any of you have ever done the 365 days of reading through Scripture, how often you read something in the Word of God, and you're like, I had no idea that was in there. Or I, I don't have any idea what that means. Hello, minor prophets. I mean, like, you just, you break it all down, and, and the Lord speaks in that. So my encouragement to you all is as we get into our next book series, read it. It's the book of Psalms, so good luck. So uh, we're going to be working through that next. But in that, Scripture has a lot to teach us. And this morning, as, as, as James wraps up his, his, his letter here, He's going to hit us with three major points. And catch this for just a minute. Remember, it, I think it's hard for us sometimes to remember that James did not sit down and write chapters and verses. Like, that's not how these original uh, writings were done. They were letters. And they were written by uh, an individual to a church, to a congregation, to a body, to a prophet, to a fill-in-the-blank. They were written as a letter in order to challenge, encourage, nourish, exhort, fill-in-the-blank. And so as he's coming to the end of this letter, James wants to give us stuff to grab hold of and then do this, apply it to our lives. So we've got these landing points today as we come into the end of James that he's going, hey, 
church, Christ followers, grab this and actually implement it in your life. Back to the idea of being a do-something church, like do something with what God's got to teach us here. Three things. The first one is this, and for most of us, this should be like the gut-wrenching, like dagger to the, to the gut right here. There's a call to be patient. Anybody in here need to work on patience? Anybody at all? I'd, I'd put my hand right up there. A few of you got your hands up. I loved it first service. Ron Sweeney, both hands went right up the minute I said it. He was owning his stuff. But there's a call to patience that exists in here. Number two, there are general issues regarding the church and Christ-following living, which are oaths, prayer, and suffering. Oaths will turn into speech. Speech, prayers, and suffering. And so there's this call of going, if you want to live out this authentic faith, here are the things you've got to implement in your life or be very cognizant of. And number three, a call to bring back all who have wandered. There is a call on us as a body to find and seek out those that have known the truth and wandered away from it, or those that have heard the truth and have resisted it and want nothing to do with it. There is an action point for all of us to get involved in what God's got to do in people's lives. So we'll start with James 5, 7 through 11. Be patient then, brothers and sisters. And let me, let me grab this real fast here. I, I, I want to read through the whole passage, but I love that James, all throughout his letter, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, there's this personal grab of, I like you, you belong to me, you're my brother or sister. I once heard a a teacher, I don't think it was a pastor, but a teacher say this, the longest relationship in your life is with a sibling. The longest relationship in your life is with a brother or sister. Think about that for a minute. Our parents will probably be gone before. Um, our, our, our spouses, we don't know for a certain period of time or our significant others. So the point became like, this is the longest relationship in your life. What a cool thing to think about. And so even James grabbing hold of us, you're my brothers and sisters, this enduring relationship that we have together in the name of a Savior matters. Until the Lord's coming, see how the, whoa, did I click too far? See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So as James starts out this section, he does something really profound that many scholars really challenge throughout most of his letter. Several scholars will say James does not exhort or hold a high Christology throughout his writing, meaning driving everything back to Christ. However, in this particular part of his letter, he clearly has a Christology focus. He uses this concept of until the Lord comes. Jesus would often say, I am going to be gone for a period, but I will return. I will be coming back in order to rescue you, to set you free, to bring you back to the Father. There is a coming back that that existed in Jesus' language. And James is grabbing hold of that and going, don't lose sight of this. Jesus is coming back. 
And Jesus was so gracious to us, and he said, in my absence, I leave with you the Holy Spirit, right? So that you can, you're all like, oh, that was the answer. Um, I leave with you the Holy Spirit so that you can still feel me and know me and you can and be, be in, in relationship with me. The Trinity. There's this Christology of recognizing that Christ is coming back and in Christ's return, just as he says in Luke and in Matthew, when I return, I will set the captive free. I will set those that are, are oppressed free. Now, this is important because just before this section in James' letter here, he's speaking directly to the poor. And he's saying, in the midst of your suffering as somebody living in poverty, somebody who doesn't have enough food and doesn't have shelter and doesn't have all the things that they could want or even that they need in life, don't lose hope, persevere, something bigger is coming. Christ will return. You've not been forgotten. And so James takes this Christology and holds this at a high level of esteem here. The word patient is used four times in this section. Patient literally has the root of its meaning, meaning a sense of calm and expectancy. A sense of calm and expectancy. Now let me be very bold and say this. This is not me. Calm and expectancy, I mean, the minute somebody described me as calm and expectant would, would be crazy because my, I have that fiery, passionate, wild, crazy spirit. I'm always ready for the next thing. If I am cruising through life and trying to accomplish an objective of something, of some kind, and there is a roadblock in my way, we will move it. If we can't move it, we will go around it. If we can't go around it, we will take a stick of dynamite and blow it up. I mean, whatever we've got to do to get around that roadblock. I am not very patient. I'm a doer. I'm a driver. I'm a passionate person. And what happens here in James for me is all of a sudden this idea of being patient and of waiting with a calm expectancy is like this deep conviction in my spirit going, Nick, do you do that very well? When I cry out to the Lord in a time of pain and a time of longing, do I wait with expectancy and calm in my spirit? No. I get frustrated. I want to move on. I want to make something else happen. For those of you that have been uh, part of Emily and I's journey, we've been trying to adopt a little girl for six years now. We've been in and out of this process of adoption, and what, what has happened is our agency closed at one point, uh, the country closed at one point, the country closed again recently, the country's reopened. It's been this six-year process. Impatience is not my gift. It's not something that I even really grasped with God, but I felt the Lord telling me, Nick, you've got to learn in the midst of this that I've got this. Be patient and just wait with a sense of expectancy. Something's coming. And we've been matched up with this little girl. She's beautiful. Her name is Haset. She's in Addis, Ethiopia, in an orphanage that we have worked with in a, in a, on a board that I serve on. And it's like the Lord just had this set there, but not me. I, I was ready to abandon this process. Let's just uh, do foster care in the United States. I, I'm tired of waiting, even though we felt this call for years to adopt. And from that, like the Lord just challenges this calm expectancy in me. Four times in here, wait, wait, wait. It's a call 
to patience under adverse circumstances. Most of us, if we're really honest, we want to just get through something as fast as possible. But the Lord's saying, wait. There's nothing more convicting to me on a little bit lighter note of how bad I am at being patient in traffic. I have a bad mouth in traffic. And it's not that I'm dropping the F-bomb in the car or that I'm cursing in front of my children. It's just that every time somebody does something wrong in driving, I make a comment out loud, for the love. Don't they know how to drive? Don't text and drive! Like, you know, I'm just like an angry little soul. Come on, it says yield. Yield does not mean stop. (laughs) This is probably the one my boys would tell you I say all the time. On and on ramp, speed up fast. You don't go slow. How come people don't get that? Like... And I'll never forget my son really just challenging me on, Daddy, we see your lack of patience when you drive. And it's so true. It is horrible in my spirit. But I've got to work on it. But most of us, patience is not where we thrive. And in this, what happens is is James then says, look, don't only be patient, but you've got to persevere in that. And perseverance is used two times here. And the, and, the, and the root of this idea of perseverance is to have patient endurance and fortitude. Which fortitude means this. I see this obstacle. I see what's ahead of me. And I just keep going. Not in I make it go away or I ask for an easier route. It's that I see it and I just endure it. And I, I fall back on my Savior, and I get through it. I love this picture of this little kid climbing these stairs because they look huge, but nothing going to stop them. I mean, each step is larger than its legs, and yet I'm going to get over that right there. I'm going to endure in the midst of this. And James sees this, and he goes, let me, let me give you a, a good example of what this would be like. So he takes this example of farmers. And he says in the passage, these farmers, basically, they they get up, they go out to their crop, they pick their crop. After they've harvested the crop, they tear it down, they till the soil, they replant the seed, they wait for it to water, they wait for the sun to come out, for the rains to take care of it. It produces a fruit, they pick it, it produces a crop, after they pick it, they tear it down, they till the soil. And it becomes just this rote process that occurs. But the point that James is making for all of us to grab hold of here is that this is your life. It's this ongoing process. And his audience would have got this because they would have all seen farmers all along the way doing this and just persevering with patience season after season. Most of us, if we're really honest, we don't like seasons. We just want to book it through everything under the sun. I thought to myself, if James were writing this letter... What might be some examples of what he would use today? Well, one of them is pregnancy. Anybody who went through pregnancy get the app that told you every day and every trimester and every part of the, along the way of what was going to happen? Or maybe you got the book, to, What to Expect When Expecting. I mean, like, pregnancy is a big deal in today's culture. Like, we're going to go through and write out every single one of these experiences, all with this, come on, let's just get there. There's nothing like seeing a woman who's in her third trimester who's utterly exhausted and just like, I just want, I just want the baby out. I'm done. I'm done with this. It's this expectancy, persevere, get through it as fast as possible. Or anybody travel on 49 on a regular basis right now? For the love, right? The traffic about to kill anybody? And let's be really honest, Northwest Arkansas traffic is we waited a whole extra three minutes, you know? It's not like we live in L.A. or Houston where literally their commutes could be 45, an hour and a half long because the traffic's so bad. 
But there's this expectancy, and many of us, our patience begins to fray in that. As a professor for, for years at JBU, I remember watching college student after college student, some of this, this was you or is you, you just wanted to be out of college. I'm ready for it to be done. I'm ready to not have to study and take tests anymore. I'm just ready to get my degree and get a job and be able to make money or, or, or get married or whatever plan it is I have following college. And I remember thinking to myself time and time again and then saying out loud, stop wishing it away. When you get a mortgage, it's not as fun anymore. Life is good. But it's almost like so many of us, we just want to get to the next season of life. We want to push through as fast as we can. And we're not patient in just experiencing this moment right here, right now. In psychology, we call it living in the here and now. Are you living in the here and now? Whether you're in pain and you're suffering, whether you're in poverty and you're struggling, whether you're rich and robust and have everything you could possibly want, in whatever season or place you're in, are you living in the here and now? Do you love this moment? And James is saying, hey, in this moment, there's an expectancy of waiting for something. And what you're waiting for is for this active and living God to come back. But don't wish away this moment right here right now. Instead, in whatever season you're in, stand firm. All right, because I love you, I'm going to pop you pretty hard here, so just grab this one, okay? We have a problem in evangelicalism today. We have a problem in faith throughout the world today, and here's what it is. We get mad at God when he does not answer our prayer right now. How many of you have honestly sat with people or you yourselves get frustrated because God didn't give you what you want right now and you will literally hear the words come out of your mouth, I'm just mad at God. I don't think I'm going to go to church for a season. I'm just, you know, I'm done with that for a while. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I hear it all the time. Not too long ago, we had an experience with some really good friends of ours. They were told that they were never going to be able to have children And lo and behold, they have two beautiful children. Gorgeous. The Lord came through. They're trying to get pregnant with their third child, and they can't. They've been trying for a while, and they can't. And I was actually sitting around a dinner party with this uh, woman in this particular thing. She said, I'm just so mad at God. I'm just done with it. I'm done with going to church. I'm done with praying right now. It's like God doesn't even care. And I remember this angst in my spirit going, really? Hold on just a second here. You were told you would never have children. And you have two beautiful children. And now because God is not giving you the third one that you want right now, you're mad at him and you're done with him? This is what we do. Donald Miller wrote a part of a a book in which he talked about this idea of the slot machine God. And if we don't win that slot machine thing, that we pull that that ripple trickle thing down and it doesn't give us what we want, we're mad at God. We're mad at God? Let me be very frank with you. I actually think when we get to heaven and we stand there at the day of judgment, it's not going to be all the sins that got preached from the pulpit That, hey, these are all the things don't do in life. Don't have orgies. Don't get drunk. Don't be gay. Don't be fill in the blank. I don't think those are going to be all the ones where God's going to pop us in our heart. I think it's going to be right here. It's going to be, did you miss me because you didn't get what you wanted 
in your Americanized time frame? Man, that to me is convicting. We blame God when our prayers are not answered the way we want them right away. Please hear that. I love you, and it should challenge us. It challenges me. We live in a culture and a society today where we don't stand firm because we don't get our way. We expect God to give us what we want when we want it. That's not how the Lord of the universe works. Please hear that. So in this, what happens? When we grow weary in patience and we don't want to persevere, we take it out on other people. Anybody been there? Anybody been woken up? You're kind of irritated. You're impatient. And the next thing you know, it's the person right next to you. You're angry at your brothers. You're angry at your sisters. You're angry at your significant other. You're angry at your children. You just feel this like angst because you can't be patient. And what James sees here is your lack of patience and your lack of desire to persevere in whatever struggle or suffering or whatever's taking place in your life leads you to take it out on other people. So in this, don't grumble against one another. Don't do it. Keep that spirit in check or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So in this, there's this judgment that's going to come towards us when we have a lack of patience to endure and walk with the spirit and when we instead turn and flip it on other people. See, here's the deal. As I walk through this, I think time and time again against each other. What does that mean? Well, James draws us back earlier in in, in chapter 5 here and reminds us at this particular point that he's speaking to the poor among us, and he's saying, hey, poor, don't be mad and blame and grumble against the rich because you feel as if they're oppressing you. That's not what you should be doing. And likewise, rich, do not grumble and complain and oppress the poor and grumble against them because they are your brothers and sisters. Now here's my little political tangent for two seconds. In our culture today, we have to recognize something. There are people in poverty among us. There are people who don't have enough among us. There are people that are dependent upon your tax dollars in order to survive every single day of their life. Now, here's the deal. Some of us get a spirit and an angst in us in which we say, I just don't want people living off the system. I know they're just abusing it. They're out to take everything from everybody because they're lazy. In that grumble against people, that angst in our spirit, here's what it does. It divides us from one another. And it's not what God is calling us to do. Are there people that abuse the system? Absolutely. I work in nonprofit healthcare. I get it. I really do. But here's what I would love to say the people that abuse the system and that are out to take and out to, to, to basically take advantage of you is probably one to five percent of the people out there. It's not the masses. of the people work two jobs. They they work endlessly to get by. They're out trying to figure out how to make ends meet meet, make ends meet by themselves because they don't want to use the system. But yet in Northwest Arkansas, if we took that for an example, we don't have enough housing for people. Do you know that? We certainly don't have enough housing for people that make below $30,000 a year without it being literally half to three quarters of their entire salary. Why do I push this? Because we can grumble against those people all we want. 
We can take away all the resources available to them because we don't want them to use the system. But at the end of the day, what we're being called to is to go, hey, we live in community with one another, whether you're the rich or you're the poor, and you've got to figure out how to do this well together because that's what you're called to do as a body. You will patiently endure this with one another. Receive that however you want, but recognize that a living and active God in this world says to us, come on, do this together. And politically, we'll have to figure out what that looks like. Ultimately, James is saying, the poor are not your enemy, just as the rich are not your enemy. And James draws us to the ultimate example. He gives us Job, right? Which Job is like the ultimate trump card, right? In pain, in agony, in life. And there's this great passage in Job that I love. It's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. And Job replies to his wife, who's basically saying, curse God and die, just get, get through this. He looks at his wife and says, you are talking like a foolish woman. That's not my favorite part. I wouldn't let my wife know that. <laughs> Shall we accept the good from God and not the trouble? I love that. And in this, Job did not sin in what he said. Should I accept just the good in life? And when things are good, I'm loving God, praising him, and everything's great in life. But when trouble comes, I'm going to complain, I'm going to curse, I'm going to wish away God. No. In that, we've got to learn to endure and to have patience in the midst of whatever we're going through. And here's another bold statement to that. We are not all Job. I think sometimes a lot of us think we are. A good buddy of mine, we had a great moment in time in which uh, he in one week got rear-ended, jacked up his car pretty bad. He also dropped his phone and shattered the screen on it. And in a conversation, he goes, I just feel like I'm having a Job week. And <laughs> it's that moment when you're kind of like, really? Like we're going to compare, you know, a fender bender and a dropped phone to losing everything. I'm going to go with this is not a Job week. And Lord, give me the ability to gently rebuke my brother. <laughs> we need some perspective on the pain and suffering that people do endure. So in pain and suffering, what does it look like to walk with God in the midst of that? Because what we ultimately learn here is in the passages, uh, James is using this word until which literally means until we find purpose in the midst of the journey. It's that famous quote or line that it's not the destination that matters, it's the journey to get there, right? It's that, that's what matters. It's the idea of purpose in our suffering, purpose in our pain. Here's another one. Maybe it's not suffering or pain that you're in. It's just purpose in waiting as you go along. What purpose do you find today in the midst of your life? Whatever it might be, do you know your purpose? Now, here's the deal. I don't believe that every time we walk through life in every circumstance and situation that we're in, that God is sitting there going, have you learned your purpose? I'm writing it down. And until you learn it, I'm just going to keep making you go through until I can write down that you learned the purpose. I don't think we, work, we, live, we live with an active God like that. What I do think God does is say, hey, hey, I'm with you on this. Can you find purpose in me as you develop patience or as you endure in pain or as you learn to live in community with one another? Can you find purpose in it? 
That's what I feel like God is constantly drawing us back to. So what purpose do you have in life? So James continues here in his letter in 5.11 through 18. He says this, As you know, we count it blessed those who have persevered, as you have heard about Job's perseverance, which we just talked about, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He's full of it. He's got, he's got an abundance of it. He wants to lump on you even when you're struggling and complaining about your first world problems. Right? And in that, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And in this, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So James now pulls us into his closing themes of his letter that he wrote. And it's three of them. It's that speech, prayer, and suffering. Now here's what's awesome about the book of James, the letter that James wrote. This is consistent with everything you've heard for the last several months as we've walked through the book. He's reminding us. It's that, that, that classic, if you want to be a good teacher, preacher, speaker, a good leader, you constantly drive back to the same three themes. James does that beautifully well here. He takes us back to this, and it's the same focus he had throughout the entire letter. So speech, do not swear, is not cursing. I want to start with that. Not that, that we should run around cursing all the time because we have the freedom to do that, which, which I think I've been in that stage before in life. It's not about cursing. Here's what, it, what swearing is about. It's taking the Lord's name and the Lord's authority and the Lord's power and using it inappropriately. It's taking that oath of God and applying it to something it was never meant to be applied to. That is a sin. I love how one scholar put it. It's using God's name to buttress the truth. I got to be honest here. Google came into to my world at this one. What does that mean? I loved it. To buttress. It is to increase strength or reinforce one's argument by invoking the ultimate authority. If I use God's name for something, boom, you can't argue with it. If I said God said it, boom. You can't argue with it. You just have to accept whatever came out of my mouth. Because if God said it, and God is truth, and everything God says is true, this is truth. And so James is saying, hey, in this, slow down. You need to let your yeses be yes. If you're taking an oath or you're making a statement in my name, you better make sure it's dead on. Otherwise, you're entering into a place of sin, and as he's talked about throughout James, if you're speaking it in my name and you're leading people theologically astray, 
you're leading them into sin, and you're going to be held at a higher account for that. Leviticus 19.12, do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God, for I am the Lord. All throughout Scripture, God makes this point of going, my name has authority, my name has power. Don't misuse it. And I think there are times in our lives that we misuse the Lord's name. And let me say this. I think at times we do it unintentionally, and I think at times we do it intentionally. An example of unintentionally. Has anybody ever heard somebody along the way say, you shall never drink alcohol in the name of the Lord, for that's a sin? I've heard it many times. Well, theologically, I believe that person was probably taught that throughout their lifetime. Maybe they were a part of a denomination that stood strong on that platform. Maybe their their parents believed that in the name of the Lord, this is absolute truth. And so therefore they go about telling people, this is the truth, this is what God said, this is God. And in reality, it's bad theology. It's not accurate. But it's an unintentional using of God's name. I think we accidentally do this to people sometimes. Man, I just really feel like God's telling you fill in the blank. Well, you better be darn sure that that's what God's saying about that person through you as you're speaking that out loud, because there are plenty of examples throughout time of people going, this was spoken over me, and this hurt my life. Slow down. Slow down. Again, hear me. A lot of grace here because I think we do it unintentionally. We long to hear from the Lord. We long to walk in that, and unintentionally we use God's name in a way that it wasn't meant to be used. But it still results in us being warned about it. But then I think there's this. I think there's when people intentionally use God's name in order to get their way, to get what they want. For a period of time, I worked with a couple that was in relationship, and one of the individuals was saying, hey, God told me that we're going to get married. God told me that this, this, this relationship is right. The other person did not have that same peace. Stayed in relationship, off and on, engaged at one point. And man, I'll tell you this. God said it to one person. That person stood on that platform and it really messed the other person up for a period of time because they couldn't find God saying that to them. They eventually broke up. They were kind of an it couple at a church uh, working together. I ran into the young woman at a coffee shop a few years later, asked her how she was doing in the midst of that hasn't been back to church, kind of stepped away from God, just really felt like that abusive relationship, that manipulative situation just drew me away from God. And it was because in the name of God. It made this person question, maybe I don't hear God right, maybe I don't understand. Why do they hear from God about me and I don't hear from God myself? In reality, what I would argue is this person, in a desperation to keep this relationship, was manipulating it using God's name. And James is saying, hey, if you're doing this, slow down. Be careful here. Most likely what's happening here is James is drawing back to Jesus' words as in Matthew 5, 34 through 37. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or for God's throne or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black no matter how hard you try, you're not going to pull it off. All you need to simply say is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And that's convicting. 
I love how throughout time, the Jewish culture actually adopted a best practice or a best policy, and it was this, we don't use in the name of God. Whoa. But we have prophets that use in the name of God. But Jewish best practice, it doesn't mean they never do it, but it means the go-to is not to use the Lord's name because if we're wrong or if we miss it, we can cause other people to fall into sin. Does that make sense? Are you, are you, does, does that make sense to me? You're just staring at me. I, I, I hope that that point is being driven home. Be slow to use the Lord's name. And what's happening here, why is this taking place? Why is this the best practice? This oath-taking thing Throughout history and culture, if you were to join some pagan sect, if you were to become a part of some satanic worship group, fill in the blank, you had to go through an oath ceremony. And so James is saying, hey, we recognize that this takes place in pagan culture. You take these oaths, you swear by this name, by the name of Baal. But that's not what you want to do. So by being a Christian and not doing that with your God, you are setting yourself apart. You're being more distinct. So best practice is not to look like them. Number two, it's to avoid including God in a falsehood should we not be able to accomplish or keep the oath. How many of you could recognize, hey, in my life, I have said, I really feel like this is where God's taking me. This is what God's going to do with my life. You proclaimed it from the rooftops only to several years later be nowhere close to that. Anybody ever done that? That was me. After I fell in love with Jesus and and started walking with the Lord in high school, I I really felt like I was going to be the CEO and president of Walt Disney Company. True story. I wrote an essay about it. As a matter of fact, it was my essay to get into college. It was pretty darn good about how I was going to be the CEO of Disney. I felt it. I knew it in my spirit. I went to every leadership. I went to every innovative Disney dream conference I could possibly go to. But let me tell you today, I am not the president and CEO of Disney. I'm not even on the right path. But I proclaimed it. It's where I was headed. I'm really glad I didn't say in the name of Jesus on that one. But I sure did tell people, I really feel like this is what God's going to do with me. I feel this calling in me. Man, be careful when you do that. Be slow to speak in that. I was telling somebody the other day, I really feel like as I've grown in my life and in the Lord, I'm a lot slower to tell the stuff that I feel in my heart. My exact words actually were this. I feel like I'm becoming an introvert, which is scary to me. I'm married to one. Like, I love being an extrovert. I love drawing my energy from people. I love doing things like this. But I feel like my spirit's slowing down. I think it's because for so long I've said things, I've been burned by it, by my own stuff. I don't want to do that anymore. And I certainly don't want to do it in the name of God. And the third one is this, to maintain a high standard of truth in speech. We live in a culture and a world, a political environment right now where people don't know what truth is anymore. It's up, it's down, it's all around. I mean, who knows if what you read anymore in the news is accurate? Who knows if what somebody says is accurate anymore? We can fact-check all we want, but the reality is in today's Google-crazy society, we can pretty much fact-check anything and find the answer we eventually want to have, even if it's not truth. And so God is telling us through James, slow down, be slow to speak. 
quick to listen. And if you say something out of your mouth, if you make a yes or you make a no, you 100% stand behind that. And you have the patience and the endurance to get through it. Be slow to speak. And the second part of this, we're drawn into prayer. James references prayer in every one of these verses. Now, again, he wasn't writing in verse format, but he drives home the point, and he says, you're going to see prayer of the individual, prayer of the elders, prayer of the friend and companion, and prayer of the righteous prophet Elijah. We are called to be a body that is slow to speak, quick to endure with one another in that, and not to misuse the name of God. And in the midst of all that, we are going to embrace prayer with one another. Prayer is one of our core components here at New Heights. We believe that the Lord shows up when we call on his name, when we walk with him in prayer. If anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. If anyone is happy, let them sing songs of praise. If any one of you is in trouble, that word trouble is actually not translated to sickness. Some of your versions would actually maybe say sickness. It's inaccurate. The true root word of understanding the word trouble is a misfortune. It's when something didn't go the direction or the way that you would like it to go in life. It's a misfortune. The other part of this in Scripture, the use of that word, is not advocating that it go away. Just like in James 1, when we endure through our suffering in order to discover perseverance, we should not always pray away our pain. That's a hard one for a lot of us. And then get mad at God if he doesn't take our pain away right away. Instead, our prayers are to draw us close to the living, active God who says, I want to walk and be in relationship with you as you discover purpose in the midst of your misfortune, in the midst of the trouble that you're in. So pray to me. Call on my name. So the goal of prayer, catch this, is not to find an answer or an absolution, but rather to banter with the living God about one's journey in a fallen world. If the only time you pray to God is in order to get an answer or to get forgiveness or to get what you want from God, you're missing what prayer is meant to be. Prayer is meant to be this time where you just go to this living and active God and go, let me just lay it all out here and just walk with me in the midst of that. Every day I grow deeper and deeper in who I am in you because we converse, we banter, we're in relationship with one another. Do you have an active prayer life that's not just your request to God? It's that classic thing. I've heard it set up here by Sean. I've heard it said by Josh. I've heard it said by myself that, hey, do you only pray to God when you're in pain? Don't do that. Pray to God also on days that are really good. But the reality is most of us go, yeah, I, I pray to God when I'm struggling or when there's pain or when I'm having to persevere or I have a lack of patience and pain. Man, you should be active in your prayer life, your conversation with God every single day. Because in that, you are bantering with the living and active God. The other part that I'd go back to pushing on, just like I did a little while ago, is this. Stop praying God would give you the American dream. Stop it. That's not what God's up to. Instead, you can actively pray that God will join you in dreaming while you live in America. But don't ask him to give you the American dream. Ask him to give you what he has for you. You might be utterly shocked and surprised at what that is. 
But God wants to do something in your heart. And if all you're doing is striving, being impatient, and trying to get to where you want to go, I guarantee, much like I have, you will miss it. You will miss the thing that God has for you. And so in this, James is pushing on this idea. You've got to develop this prayer life as a discipline. You have to work at it. Most things that we highly value in life in our church are disciplines. Here's an example. Prayer is a discipline. Here's a deeper one. Intimacy is a discipline. Any of you that are married know that. Any of you that are parenting, you know that. Like, you work at it. It doesn't just happen because you want it to. It's a discipline. You work at it. So here's the other part of this. Joy is a discipline. You cultivate it in your spirit by a conscious choice day after day. I am blown away as a man who sits with people often when I just see all the pain, the hurt, the suffering, the adversity that they're walking through, and yet they are just these joyful spirits. And I long for that. Literally in my world, as people are, are, are passing away in the hospital, they oftentimes will talk about how like what you poured into your life over time is what comes out of you when you're kind of in and out of a state of consciousness. And they will tell story after story of, of people that they could tell that just had a discipline of joy or thankfulness in their life because even in and out of their consciousness, they would just sing praises or they'd have these just statements of joy and love. It would just become this outpouring in their lives. But people that sowed in bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment, man, they are mean in their last days, hours of life. I want that type of joy, but here's the deal. I have to work at it. And part of working at it might be sitting with God in my prayer life every day and saying, Lord, meet me here in this, this discipline. And then in that, the elders pray and our friends pray. James says, you do prayer in community. Catch that. At New Heights, again, one thing we deeply value is living this out in community. Why do we do it? It's to carry one another's burdens we do life together so that you don't have to feel alone. See, in evangelicalism, we've learned something. We have this little zipper from the top of our head to the balls of our feet, but we've learned how to unzip it just enough to let like, enough stuff come out that like, makes us look like we're really authentic, because we love that word. Like, I'm going to really let you see and know me. But the reality is, if somebody came up to you and just grabbed that zipper and went whoosh, like just, all this stuff would come out of you. We want to be that kind of community. Let's just go run up to each other and whoosh, just get it out. And in that, here's the deal. We then carry one another's burdens. We then walk through life with one another in your sin that you're living in or that you desperately want to get away from or that you're unaware of. But we can't do that if we don't seek one another out in prayer from our elders and our friends. And I love this. In scripture, he says, you're going to anoint each other with oil. Why would the elders do this anointing with oil? For one, it was actually a medicine. It was medicinal, saying, hey, here's the healing. Let's get some, some peace to feel if, if it can numb some of that pain. There was, there was literally this, this healing that came forth from it. But the second thing was this oil that was used in prayer was a sign of faith that what we're praying to God about, he hears. 
He can heal the sick. He can do whatever he wants in the midst of that. But we're going to stay with one another even if he doesn't heal us in that. We're not going to walk away from God if he doesn't answer our prayer for healing right now. We're just going to anoint each other with oil. We have a calling to walk in life with that. Now, some of you know I have a softness in my heart for Catholicism. And one of the core tenets, beliefs of Catholicism is the idea of confession. Do I think they get it right? No. Do I think we get it right in evangelicalism? No. I think there's, there's a good middle ground of practicing the art of confession. But we've got to get back to it. To walk to one another and go, look, let me confess my sin. Because when I confess it, I bring it in the light and it no longer consumes me. You now get to ask me about it. If I confess that I'm struggling with something and I know you're going to ask me about it in a couple hours or a couple of days, heavens, it might stop me from getting involved in it. As somebody who gets often time and opportunity to speak to young marrieds or those that are, that are getting ready to get married or those that are married about pornography, I always say, if you're about to look at pornography, confess that sin to your spouse. Say, I'm really struggling with pornography. Here's when I typically look at it. Here's when it typically becomes part of my life. Because here's the deal. Later on, your spouse is going to ask you about it, and you're going to have to say, I know I confessed it, but I did it anyway. Or you're going to say, I confessed it to you. I felt like you could carry that burden with me. You prayed over me. You walked in it, and man, I did not go there. When we confess our sin, we build accountability in it. But it takes us doing it with one another and praying over that. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. As James lands this letter, he doesn't end it with a good warm greeting like Paul does. He just kind of smacks us here at the end and goes, look, if you're wandering from the faith, it's most likely due to the fact that you are suffering from something. And in that, you've got to be called back by your brothers and sisters to be able to do that more gracefully with patience and endurance and perseverance. But don't stop. Don't give up. So James gives us three significant theological ideas to grab hold of here at the end. Number one, Christians have an opportunity and a responsibility to live in relationship with one another. You have to do this together. You cannot do it alone. I have a dear friend of mine. He's a homosexual. And I love him with my entire heart. And we were praying one day. And literally, I just, I looked at him. And at this particular time, I had oil. And I took out the oil and I anointed it. And I just wiped it right across his forehead. And I just said, I love you. I'm not going anywhere. I am walking life with you in all the struggle, all the ups and downs, all the things you're going through. I love you. And we're, we're, we're going to stick this thing out together. I'm not going to let you run away from Jesus, who loves you and craves you because of something in your life. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to anoint you with this oil. And what is so profound right now is every time I see him, he does this. It's become his statement with me. I am my brother's keeper. I walk life with you no matter how messy it is, even if there's things about your life I don't agree with. Imagine that when we live in that type of authentic community and in that we're saying, I'm not going to let you wander away from Jesus. I'm going to draw you back. Every time. And the second part of this is, why? Because there is a real penalty for sin, and it is death. 
as a person that lives out and loves grace theology, I can't get away from truth theology. And the truth of theology says if we don't repent from our sins, if we don't choose Jesus Christ, death awaits. An absence of God awaits. That should scare the bejesus out of all of us in this room to say we don't want a single friend, a single family member, a single colleague, a single person in northwest Arkansas, a single person in the United States of America, a single person in the entire world to perish because we didn't do our job of living out authentic community with one another going, come on, there is a Savior that loves you. Let's get, let's get some patience and some endurance and we'll walk this thing out together. And if i got to slap some oil on your head every other week, I will do that. Because I'm not going to lose your heart. I have a passionate 12-year-old child who, for the love, tests everything inside of me. But every night when he goes to bed, no matter how hard that day has been, Tenny, I will never lose your heart. I will speak those words over him, and I mean it. Because I know when I go in my room and I lay my head down on that pillow, the Savior of the world, the God, the creator of all things, looks at me and says, Nick, I will not lose your heart. And the last thing is this, reconciliation with God covers a multitude of sins, amen? It's biblical. Our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and every time we call on his name, every time we enter into his presence, every time we go there together, God shows up and says, I got this sin thing. You all messy, but I got you. And we're going to walk this together. So as we close today at New Heights, as most of you know, we have communion on the sides. Go take communion with one another. And here's my push on some of you. If something hits you today, if you're misusing the name of God, if you're being impatient, if you're mad at God over some first world problem in your life, or you really just need to get real with God because some sin is holding you down, Find somebody on our prayer team. They're not elders by the status of the way we do church and the bylaws, but they're elders in the way they care and love for one another. Or grab that friend or companion and go, I want to get a little bit deeper. I want to do life more honestly and authentically. Pull that zipper down on me and pray over me. Don't let me do this alone. And I don't know if we have some anointing oil right now, but if we don't, just stick your finger in that cup right there, get some blood on it, and anoint them with that because I guarantee that's just as symbolic to our Savior. We want to walk in authentic community with one another. But you got to do it. Please hear that. It doesn't just happen. You've got to be intentional. Just like you develop joy as a discipline, we develop community as a discipline. So Lord God, just fall in this place challenge each and every one of us at the core of our being to fall deeper in love with you and to be able to walk this life with one another. Help us to learn patience. Help us to endure suffering. Help us to lay down all the things we want and ultimately to seek your purpose in our lives. Thank you for James's letter that challenges us to not let one single person in our life go through life alone or without knowing how much you love them. I'll never lose your heart, Nick. I'll never lose your heart, all of you hearing this today. I'll never lose your heart, Jesus said from the cross. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen.